We're starting a new series, and how fun is that? We're going to talk about the names of God. And I don't know, like I, when I first started studying, when I first suggested the names of God, actually I was a little bit like, uh, to be honest with you, because it sounded a little academic, and I like practical things. But I was like, everybody else was like, this is what we want to do, and, and, our, and our prayer thing, and obviously I trust God and his Holy Spirit, and I was like, okay, this is what we're going to do. So I got to be studying in the Word um, and spending time just uh, and, and really communing with God through the Scriptures, through this series, and it's amazing how God reveals himself, and I'm very excited uh, for this series for you guys and how it can grow us closer to God. Now, why are we doing this, Names of God? Well... Let me take a step back and say, why would we do any of this? Right? We say every week, we are disciples of Jesus that build disciples of Jesus. Hopefully I say that enough that you have me in your dreams telling you this. Right? Because that's what Jesus told us to do, isn't it? And everything past that is, is how, what does that mean to be a disciple? To learn to obey him in all things. That's discipleship. That's the, the new life we have in Christ. Well, a disciple does what? It follows Jesus. That's what we do, don't we? We are disciples of Jesus. We, we follow him. Jesus said, follow me when he made disciples. So if we're following Jesus, do you ever wonder where he's going? I mean, really, that's, that's the goal of discipleship. It's not just to catch up with Jesus, right? It's to follow him. We say, where is he going? Jesus told us. He told us. He, we, we prayed to the Father and said, Father, I have come to bring you glory. That I would know you and the world would know you through me. That they, would, that they would love you as I love you, right? To know God and to, to enjoy God and to glorify God. That is the work of Christ. And not just here in this world, but also in heaven. He brings the Father glory. And so for us, if we are disciples of Jesus, to build disciples of Jesus, the highest aim, the, the greatest thing that we can do is to, to enjoy God and to bring him glory. Now let me ask you, how can we enjoy God if we don't know him? Right? And how do we know God if we don't at least start with his name? When you meet somebody, what's the first thing you do? Hi, my name is, right? Names matter. And when God revealed himself to us, he revealed himself to us by name. Our God is not some nebulous force that just resides out there in the universe. He is wonderful and spectacular. And I will tell you this, is this sounding like glorifying God seems maybe boring to you or, or seems like a small thing that doesn't sound so awesome? Let me just encourage you with this. Have you ever used a tool for the wrong reason? Like I remember I was an electrician. I had a screwdriver that I used for everything, right? I could dig little trenches with it. I'd use it as a chisel. And I'd chisel out something in the wall, I, right? I used it all, um, all kinds of things. I used, thing. I used it as a hammer sometimes when I couldn't get my hammer in there in the area and you kind of use the back side of it. I used that screwdriver for everything. But you know what? My screwdriver, though it could do those other things, it wasn't good at those other things. It, it was damaging to that screwdriver doing those other things. My screwdriver was the happiest was when I was actually driving screws with it, right? I mean, that's when it was, everything just clicked. It was like, I'm made for this. Nothing more natural, right? Nothing, you just find and you drive a screw. It's just awesome. Well, you were made to glorify God. You were made to enjoy God. That's why he made you. Right? That's, that's your purpose. That's our purpose of existing. Isn't that awesome that our purpose in existing is to, is to enjoy God and to glorify him? When we do that, as you in your life begin to grow in Christ, you begin to enjoy God for who he is and begin to glorify, bring him glory, there's nothing more natural, nothing easier, nothing feels, it just kind of clicks. The world clicks 
into place. And how many of us spend our lives pursuing everything but that? Right? We can do other things. We could spend our lives doing all kinds of other things, but it's just wasted energy. We look for fulfillment in all these other things in life that really we weren't ever made for those things, whether it's work or it's pleasure or all kinds of other stuff that we try to live for. But when we live for God and we bring him glory and we get to enjoy him for who he is, it's the most amazing thing. And it's God's gift, right, to us. So this summer, we're going to be getting to know God, to bring him glory, to be able to draw closer to him. So we get to know him by name. And, you know, and, and names in our culture are important because it helps us know, you know, Bob from Ted, that's important. We get that. But in Scripture, names take on an even bigger meaning because of a different culture that it was written in, right? And you think for Israel, it's like names mattered. When you named your kids something, it was like it talked about their character or their destiny of, of some part of who they were. Names mattered. In fact, names that didn't matter to the Hebrews, they mattered to God. So much so there are times that God would just come in and he would say, you've got the wrong name, I'm changing your name. I mean, it fundamentally changes the name, then changes the course of history. Let me give you an example. There's a guy named Abram. Abram, he lived over, uh, you know, in this, this area that was uh, filled with uh, pagan gods and all this kind of stuff. And somehow he had a faith in God just enough. And God called Abram and he said, leave that area. Go to a land I'm going to promise I'm going to give to you. Just, just go. And I'm gonna, you, I know you're old, but I'm going to give you a kid. And so Abram leaves, and he goes, and he gets this, this promise that God was going to, and he said, but through this, I'm going to make you a mighty nation, right? Even though you don't have a descendant, I'm going to make you a mighty nation, and the world's going to be blessed through you. And Abram goes and does this, and then after some years, his faith starts to wane a little bit, and so God changes his name. He says, you know what? Your name's not Abram, which means exalted father. He says, your name is going to be Abraham. I want you to get this, which means father of many. And he said, I want you to look at the stars in the sky, and then your descendants are going to be so numerous, it's going to be like those, you can't even count them. God changed the name. He changed the destiny. And then later, two generations later, there's a guy named Jacob. Jacob means heel grabber, which in the culture back then meant liar. And Jacob, whose grandson was pretty much, he was a twin, and he was born second, grabbing his brother Esau's heel. And the rest of his life, up to this point, he, he was basically a deceiver, right? He tricked his brother Esau out of the promise, right? He, he did all these kinds of things, and, and then... Later on in life, God gets a hold of, of Jacob, and he says he wrestles with him. And after he wrestles with him, Abram walks in a, or Jacob walks in a whole new way, right? The, the, the war between him and God is over. And he says, let me change your name for you. You used to be called Jacob. Now you're going to be called Israel, which means wrestled with God. How cool is that? And, it, and Israel is the, is, the, is the name that we carry for God's people. That's the nation got that name. God wanted it to be very clear that his people were not named deceiver. His people are those that have wrestled with God and have let God win, right? That, that live to walk and tell the, the tale, right? We walk in a new way. When God himself came to earth, it was so important that he was going to get the right name that he sent a messenger to Joseph. And in, in this messenger, this angel shows up to Joseph and says, hey, uh, you're your fiance, she's pregnant. Don't worry, it's from God. It's the Messiah. And this is what you're going to name him. That was the command. That was Joseph's to-do list. Name the kid. And you're going to name him Jesus because he's going to save his people from their sins. And Jesus means God saves. See, names matter to God deeply. And so when in Scripture, when God reveals himself to us by name, we should listen. 
It tells us something about who he is, and we want to know who God is. Our memory verse today, we're going to come back to it several times in today's message. We want to start just by setting it to our heart. It comes to us from the book of Leviticus. And it says this, And I will walk among you, and I will be your God, and you shall be my people. And right now, that may not seem like it's very applicable, but oh, but trust me, you want to get this, you want to tattoo this onto your heart. So here we go. Just say it along with me. Here we go. And I will walk among you and will be your God, and you shall be my people. Leviticus 26, 12. Oh, you guys are so much better than first service. I'll tell you what. Okay, let's do it again. And I will walk among you and will be your God, and you shall be my people. Leviticus 26, 12. 12. Isn't that a powerful passage? One more time, let's test ourselves. And I will walk among you and will be your God, and you shall be my people. Leviticus 26, 12. Awesome. We're going to come back to this, and you'll be just blown away how God keeps this. It's so cool. So when we talk about names of God, obviously in Scripture, we have the name God. Right, you, you open the Bible, it says God did this. That's his name. Well, here I've got something for you. Uh, the Bible wasn't originally written in English. Right? So there are other words that are translated that we use for our concept of God. Right? So one of the things we're going to look at is, is this one that is translated in our Bible, God. There's some, uh, most of the time, or at least first, what is this name? Now let me give you just a, a, a quick aside, okay, as to why we use the Bible we have. Um, do you read Hebrew? Probably not, because we are in Americas, right? One of the things I love about our God is he's smart enough that he can communicate more in one language. He created all the languages, right? Which is one of the things that lets us know that our God is brilliant, which means that translations carry the authority. You don't have to learn Hebrew or Greek to understand God's word. We have translations, but they're very accurate. We have been very blessed. If you go all the way back to like the 1600s, there was a King James Version that was, came out. So when the church began to split, we wanted to get God's word from Latin. And the Latin Vulgate, which actually was a translation to the common language of the time. And so the church used that for a long time. And then when, when the, the Protestants and the Catholics stopped getting along so good, right? The Protestants said, well, we need, we need a Bible. We want it to be in the language of our people. And luckily for us who speak English, it was written in English, King James authorized a Bible, and it was translated. And, and back then, they did, the, they did a really good translation, right? They had over a dozen manuscripts that, that dated back, I mean, all the way to like the 11th century, which, yeah, it was like a, a, like a thousand years from like the originals because the original copies were made on par- parchment and stuff like that. And I don't know about you, but most of my receipts from Safeway are completely gone by the end of the year when you try to do taxes, right? Paper doesn't last forever. So you got to have copies, but these copies they had were all very, very similar, and they had a very good translation and translated to the, to the language of the day. Well, fast forward. Do you speak uh, like Shakespeare? Because that was the time that it does. So we have new translations. Well, these new translations in this period of time we have this, we don't use the King James Version, and there's a reason for that. It's because, uh, one, it's like reading Latin. I don't know if you've ever had that. But also, here's something that in between the time that the King James Version was written, there was this, uh, this science that started that was called archaeology. And the King James Version had, you know, just basically over a dozen translations that we got our Bible from. Now we have almost 30,000 manuscript copies of the Bible, dating not within a 1,000 years, but all the way back, some of them within a few decades of the original writings. Isn't that amazing? And in doing so, 
our manuscript copies that we have for our modern versions are 99.94% perfect. Which means that every word in the Bible that we have, we can say with absolute confidence, was in the original writings. And the King James, for only having a couple dozen, or a little over a dozen, they did really good. But there are some chapters and things in the King James that weren't in the original text. And thanks to, to archaeology and things like this, we can tell exactly when they were added and where they were added. So in your Bibles, there's some places like at the end of Mark and things like that where there'll be like a little note there that says this wasn't in the original manuscripts, the original text. It wasn't the original scripture. Why? Because pastors back then didn't have laptops. They had, and paper was expensive. A lot of times they would write their sermon notes on the end of the thing, and then they would keep these scrolls for like 200 years. And it was time to get a new Bible. The next guy that was copying the scroll would be like, I think this was in the original. I don't know. And so the scribe would add those things. But because we have so many copies, so many other ones, we were able to tell which ones were added and where. So we have an amazing gift in this. This is what I'm trying to say. When we go into this and we're talking about the word of God, what it says, this is what God's message is to us. There's like no other book ever. And we can trust it. It's amazing. And so we talk about God, how do we reveal himself? Yes, it's, it's the name God in your Bible, but the original, we're going to talk about some of the original names that God revealed himself to us. And the first name that God reveals himself to us in Scripture is this, Elohim. Isn't that amazing? Elohim. The very first time that God reveals himself in the Scriptures, he said, this is who I am, this is the name that we often see in our Bibles translated as God. In the book of Genesis, chapter 1, where God begins to reveal himself by this name, do you know what's actually found? He uses this name 30 times in just the first chapter. 30 times. There's something that God wants us to know about himself. You know, in the Old Covenant, Old Testament, this is used 2,570 times that God reveals himself to us as Elohim. How awesome is that? So if you have your Bibles, uh, you want to be getting those out. And, and uh, as you grab those, and if you don't have a Bible, by the way, we've got lots of them in the back. And if you need a Bible or you need a, a modern translation, take one of ours, keep it our gift to you. Now, here's the thing. There's a principle in Scripture as we go into the Word, this one that's called the uh, principle of first mention. It's when something is mentioned the very first time in Scripture, it gives a context for that same concept for the rest of, of the time in Scripture, right? So a good example of that is the ark, the Noah's ark, right? The first time we read about Noah's ark in scripture is in Genesis 6. And in Genesis 6, we find that God said, hey, uh, Noah, I'm going to destroy the world because of, of they're wicked and there's my wrath coming. And so build a boat called an ark. And on that boat, you're going to be saved, you and these animals. And so that's, that's basically where my mercy is, is the ark, right? So then later on, when we read about the ark in other books of the Bible, we know that he's just not talking about another big boat. We know he's talking about the boat. When it talks about the ark, we have the concept of that this is a place of God's grace. This is a, the ark is God's mercy, right? Same thing in here. When God reveals himself for the first time as Elohim, the context tells us something, gives us a, a, a concept as to who is this God. Every other time we read about him in Scripture. So if you have your Bibles, then turn them to Genesis chapter 1. Right? And uh, Genesis is the first book in the Bible. Chapter 1 is the first part of that, obviously. So this is going to be on page 1. Probably the easiest thing to find in the Bible all year. Okay? And as you are there, I'm going to read to you the first four verses. But as I read it, I'm going to, instead of reading God, I'm going to read his name, Elohim, as it would, as it would be otherwise found in Scripture. Right? And so it says, In the beginning, Elohim created the heavens and the earth. 
Now the earth was formless and empty, and darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the spirit of Elohim was hovering over the waters. And Elohim said, let there be light, and there was light. Elohim saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness, and Elohim called the light day, and the darkness he called night, and there was evening, and there was morning, the first day. There's a couple observations, three of them actually this morning, I have for you about Elohim. What is that name? What does it mean? And how does it apply to our lives? The first thing I want you to to recognize or to, to observe from this is that Elohim is plural. And you say, but Aaron, I don't see that in my Bible. It says in the beginning, God. God's singular. <laughs> well, here's why. It's not like there's big some conspiracy out there. They're like, like these uh, New Age order translators or something. It's like we want to tell them something wrong about God. That's not it at all. Here's the thing. The reason it doesn't say in the beginning God's created the heavens and the earth is because uh, even though Elohim, the noun, Elohim, is plural, Every single verb associated, every adjective associated to it is singular. In English, we have a weird language where our nouns and verbs don't have to match up, right? We don't have like uh, the boys rans, right? But a lot of other languages, most languages have this. Your verb's got to match the noun that's there. Well, Elohim is weird. And it was the first place in scripture that God begins to blow our mind, right? The translators see this like, what do I do? The noun is plural, but the verbs are singular, In the beginning, God's he created the heavens and the earth. That's how it would translate. So how would you translate that? Is it plural or singular? You know, in the very beginning, we have this called, it's textual consistency. We have God revealing himself theologically to us the way that he truly is, even if it's bigger than our brains. And it's one of the evidences that our God was not created by people. Can you wrap your mind around the plurality in a singularity? See, later on in Scripture, we just have this develop that this plurality, the, that, that the Elohim plural is God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, but all of them somehow are just one God. The, we call that the triunity, the Trinity. Can you wrap your brain around the Trinity? No, your brain will snap. Right? See, God is bigger than your brain. If you can wrap your mind around God, your God is too small. If your God fits inside your head, it could be created by your head. So that's one of the problems we have. It's one of the evidences we see that all these other world religions are created by people. They have gods that could be seriously created by other people. We wrap our heads around them. We say, this is a God that makes perfect sense to me. See, our God is infinite, which means that if you try to fit God into your head, it's like trying to pour the ocean or the universe into a teacup. It's not going to fit. God reveals himself as he is. He doesn't say you can wrap your head around me. He says, this is who I am. He is a trinity. And we see that from the very first verse in scripture. Trinity is not something that was invented by the church thousands of years later. But from the very beginning, in the beginning, the plurality, the Elohim created the heavens and the earth. That's amazing. Now, I want you to see that how do the translators deal with this later on in Scripture? Because sometimes when you're reading the gospel, or you're reading Genesis, and you're like, this doesn't match, like the verbs and the nouns don't match. I'll give you an example. In, um, right here in Genesis, in Genesis 1.26, it says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, in our likeness. It's not as though this was like a textual error, or it's not as though this is like the royal we. <laughs> God is, has a conversation with himself. Let us do this. Right? And our likeness. So you notice, after we sinned, right? We have this in Genesis 3. It says, and the Lord God, Lord singular, by the way, 
said, The man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Or how about like this? After the flood, after Noah and his family got off the ark and people started populating the earth again, God said, go all over and spread and be fruitful and multiply. And everyone said, no, we're going to go live in this plain that looks like Kansas and we're going to build a tower. And God said, okay, this is how God responds. And and he says this, come, let us go down and confuse your language so they're not going to understand each other. Because the best way to get people to not like each other is to speak a different language, apparently. right? They're like, you frustrate me. Go to Europe, right? Or something. I don't know how they... So God, through Scripture, continues to have this inner monologue, this discussion amongst himself. There is a companionship, a community in God that is beyond our comprehension. But we know this. Elohim is plural. It is the very beginning. We see here that God, this is the triune God from the very start. And that's how he begins to reveal who he is. Second thing that we see is that Elohim means the strong one. Right? That's, that's what the name itself really means. The root of Elohim is El. And El it's, it's, uh, means mighty and strong. That's where it comes from. That's, in the Hebrew language, when they had the idea of El, they were talking about something that was mighty or strong. Oftentimes used of kings or things like this, but usually something much, much bigger. And where did that come from? You're like etymology. You're like, hey, how did we get this word? Right? Well, if you're a real nerd, you're not going to wonder about English language. You want to talk about the words like, like ancient Hebrew. Where did those words come from? So proto-Semitic, right? So you have the Hebrew language, a Semitic language. The proto-Semitic, where did the concept of El being mighty and strong, where did it come from? It came from the concept of whenever El was used in its very beginning forms, it meant terrifyingly powerful, right? So El was used for things like hurricanes. Look, when a hurricane shows up, they would be like, oh, El, <laughs> right? Terrifyingly powerful. Right? Or like a lightning bolt. Boom! L! Right? Power that just terrifies us. And that concept carries over into the very root of the name of Elohim. Mighty and powerful. Fearfully powerful. Deuteronomy 10.17, which is an awesome way, a prayer that we read there. It says, For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great L, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality and accepts no bribes. Just in case we missed it, as far as who is the great L, what are his characteristics? Oh, he's mighty. That's the strong one. And powerful and awesome, right? That's fearful. This is who God is. God is not some, you know, little, little statue that we go up to and bring fruit in a basket and sit in front of him. I'll tell you this. God is terrifyingly powerful. What do most people do in scripture when they see an angel? They pee themselves and pass out. Right? What do angels do when they see God? Cover their wings, their, their eyes. They fly around the throne saying, holy, 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 right? They fear him for he is mighty and powerful. Our God is more mighty and righteous and awesome and powerful than we could possibly fathom. See, we are finite and our brains can only expand so far, but God's might is infinite. There is no way to even begin to comprehend, to scratch the surface of his power. And who are we to trifle with a God like this? But we do. But he is the mighty El. Elohim means that he is mighty and it reminds us of his great power. But I want you to think about power. How is it often used? I mean, we talk about, like, we have an English, we have dynamite that actually comes from, you know, we have Greek, a dynamo, which means it's like powerful, things like this, right? 
Dynamite usually isn't used to clean up your room unless it's really bad. And you just take, take care of it, right? When power comes into this world, oftentimes it takes order and then creates chaos, doesn't it? That's natural law, actually, by the way. It says that if we have something that is ordered and then we apply energy to that in time, it's going to be chaotic. And the greatest example of this is your kitchen, right? The beginning of the weekend, I had a clean kitchen. You go to my house right now, I don't know what happened. It just happens, right? But think about it. You, you don't take a grenade and clean your house. You're like, power. It's got enough power to clean my house. Oh, it's got enough power. But it's not going to create a clean. <laughs> power in this world, hurricanes create destruction, don't they? Lightning bolts blow trees apart. In our world, we find there is this thing that, that we have order and then somehow we can create an amazing amount of chaos in it. Do you find that in your own life? That you are masterful at using your power to create chaos into the order of your life? Yeah. But how does God, almighty and powerful, how does God use his power? Genesis 1, chapter 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. See, our God is not a God that brings power into destruction. He is a God that brings power into creation. That is the first mentioned principle. Our God takes chaos and makes order. And you think about what kind of power that takes. It is just remarkable. This is part of who our God is. Mighty and strong. He created the heavens and the earth. Now, if you are a student of the Bible, you notice in the New Testament, there's something that we read about this God. In fact, we read something about Jesus. The apostle says this about Jesus. He says, all things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. And in fact, the apostle says, in the beginning, Jesus created the heavens and the earth. But here we see in the beginning, Elohim created the heavens and the earth. How can this be? Contradiction? Oh, I say no. Why? Because Elohim is plural. It is the Trinity. And God the Son, we find that God the Father spoke it, God the Son did it, God the Holy Spirit empowered it. And I want you to think back to our memory verse for a second. Elohim walked amongst us. Elohim put on flesh. The creator God also became created. Fascinating. This is our strong God. I think it's important for us to recognize that God starts by revealing himself to us with Elohim. He could have said uh, in the beginning, El Shaddai created the heavens and the earth. And that would make sense. That would mean El Shaddai, which we'll talk about in a later thing, is, is almighty God. <laughs> Wouldn't that fulfill the, the role? But there's something more to it. Because Elohim is not just El. It's El plus something. And the plus something is this, is the one who keeps covenant. Just as much as we have El being powerful and carrying that concept, Elohim also has roots, if you go back into it, with uh, Allah, which is the one that swears. And I'm not like the one who like hits his thumb with a, you know, a hammer and is like, ah, right? No, like the one who swears, like, I swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. That kind of swear. It's a God who makes covenant. Elohim is powerful, but he's also a God who keeps his word. I think this is pretty cool. First Kings 8.23, we read this, Lord, the God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven above or on earth below. You keep your covenant of love with your servants who continue wholeheartedly in your way. This is a God, as he says, this is the great Elohim of Israel, actually, if you would read it in the original. There is 
no Elohim like you in heaven above or earth below. And what is, makes him different than all the other gods? You keep your covenant. His very name means the one who keeps the covenant, the God who makes covenant, but he's the one who doesn't just make them but keep them. That's part of who he is. I, we find that uh, in this, that uh, when you make a covenant, it implies you have the ability to make a covenant, right? And if you wonder, like, what does that look like? Talk to a 17-year-old who wants to go buy a cell phone. They can't sign the contract. You can't make a covenant. You don't get the phone, right? God is a God who has the authority to make covenants. Why? Because he's the creator of the heavens and the earth. This falls under his jurisdiction. He has the right and the authority to make covenants. But just because you can make a covenant doesn't mean that you always keep your covenant. Have you ever noticed that? Right? That's why when people make covenants, what do we do? We hire a lawyer, we get it done and sign things in triplicate, all that kind of stuff. We have a notary, did this, so that way you're not like, oh, I forgot, right? Because people don't keep our covenants. And think how terrifying it would be if God was the type of God that was like us, that would make a covenant with us, say, I'm going to do this for you, and then he just changes his mind. He'd be like, nah, I choose that I don't want to. What would we do? You can't, like, take God to court. See, the power is that not just that God makes covenants with us, which he doesn't have to do, but that he keeps them. Look what we see in Numbers 23, 19, one of the most comforting verses in Scripture. It says, God is not human that he should lie. He's not a human being that he should change his mind. Does he speak and not act? Does he promise and not fulfill? So Elohim is a God that doesn't just make covenants. He always, always, always keeps them. We find in the New Testament it's impossible for God to lie. Why? Look at Genesis again. In the beginning, Elohim created the heavens and the earth. How? Now the earth was formless and empty. That means chaotic, by the way. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering in the waters. And then God said, let there be light. He spoke it. And when God spoke it, it happened. It became reality. That's why it's impossible for God to lie. If he says it, it's true. See, God creates reality, which is bigger than our brains, too. So if God made a covenant, he keeps it just by the nature of the fact that if he spoke it, it is. It's already in existence. And if that hurts your head, then welcome to the club. But God keeps his covenant. In fact, for God to violate his covenant means that he would have to stop being God. He'd have to, to stop being who he is at a very core, core level. So God makes a lot of covenants with people. He made covenants all the way through Scripture. I think he made a covenant with uh, Adam. Elohim made a covenant with Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, actually also with the serpent, the devil. He said there's going to be a human being, a, a, a person that has flesh, a real human being is going to be the one that destroys the power of the devil. He says it's going to crush your head, devil, and you're going to strike his heel. And Jesus came as a human being. Elohim came as a person. That just also blows our minds. God made a covenant with this guy named Abraham. He said, Abraham, move, and I'm going to make you to a mighty nation. Right? And through you, through that nation, is going to become the Messiah, and he's going to save the world. Like, the world will be blessed from him. Then God reiterates that covenant with his grandson, Jacob, who renames Israel. And then he reiterates that covenant again with David, the King David, who was the descendant of Israel. And he says, not only will he be the savior of the world, but he'll be king of kings and lords of lords. He adds a little bit to it, but he reiterates the covenant. 
And when Jesus comes, God keeps the covenant. Jesus was a child of Israel, born in the lineage of King David. And he destroyed the power of the enemy. God kept his covenant because God, Elohim, is also the powerful one that's big enough to destroy the works of the enemy. This is who God is. Elohim made another covenant with this guy named Moses, but not really with Moses, but with the people of Israel. See, God had freed the people from slavery, bondage in Egypt, and he brings them to Mount Sinai, gives them the Ten Commandments. That's not the covenant. Then he goes, he says, this is just how you should treat each other. This is the right way of doing stuff. But before they cross into the promised land, God gets the people of Israel, and he has them line up, and he has Moses read for them this new covenant that God has for the people of God. And he says, listen, there is a way that you people can be my people. And there's a way that you can be made righteous. You can represent me. And you can take the promised land. But in order to do that, and this is my covenant to you, I will protect you in this. You will be my people. And my Messiah will come through you, right? But in order to do that, you have to abide by these laws. And some of those laws were moral, and some of the laws were just cultural. But God said, if you're going to be my people, this is what you're going to do. And he told the people, and he said to the people, if you want to agree to this, this is what you will do. They stood on two mountains, one on one side, one on the other, Mount Ebal, Mount Gerizim. And, they, and Moses said, this is the law. And then if you abide by it, this is, God said, these are the blessings. This is the benefits of being in that covenant. And that mountain would yell, all the people on that mountain would yell out all the blessings. And the people on the other mountain would say, yeah, but if we don't do it, these are all the curses that we're going to get, right? This is like for defaulting. These are the penalties. So they knew very well. And then in order to become God's people, then they had to agree to this. And they were sprinkled, and eventually they crossed the river, and they were God's people. Now, in that covenant, God taught them something. The first part of the covenant, we realized, was to teach us that how righteous God is. God's people are different. There's a different way. God is doing something. right? Something else that God showed us in his law was to show us how righteous God is, but it was also to show us that we are not righteous, which is why part of that covenant, there was sacrifice. It was to teach us that sin had a cost and that we were all sinners. Even the high priest needed to be purified. And every single year the people need to be purified because we're not God and we're not pure. That covenant was to teach us and provided a way to be saved by grace through faith. It showed the people that the Messiah, what he would do. So we could understand sacrificial atonement. It prepared the world, that covenant prepared the world for Jesus, who is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And in Jesus, God fulfilled that covenant. He did. I'll tell you, God has got thousands of years of keeping his word, doesn't he? Does, does he speak and not act? Does he act and does he promise and not fulfill? God fulfills his covenants. But you know, there is a covenant that we are part of now. We call it the new covenant. When Jesus came to this earth as he was fulfilling the old covenants and the promises, he was also inaugurating a new covenant. And he talks about this new covenant. The Apostle Paul writes about it when he talks to the church at Corinth. And he says this, In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, that's Jesus, saying, This is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Elohim is a covenant-making God. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. See, that matters for us to understand who Jesus is. Jesus is Elohim. He is the mighty one, but he is the one who makes covenant and keeps them. And Elohim makes a covenant with us. And what is this covenant? You are saved by God's grace through, his, through our faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Right? That's the covenant. 
right? How are we supposed to, to act in those things? There's a lot of things to that. We believe, we confess, repent, we're baptized, we are, we are discipled, we do all of these things, don't we? But this is the covenant that we now have. And God keeps his covenant. And he kept his covenant with all of those who came before. We trusted he keeping his covenant with us now. In fact, knowing that our God is the God who keeps covenant is the very basis of our hope. Starting with salvation. Look what it says here in John 10. It says, I, this is Jesus speaking. I give them eternal life. He's talking about you and me, by the way. Us. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. Why? Jesus said that we are saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. He said that is why he keeps covenant with us. And that you are, your salvation is not based upon you. You are saved by God's grace. You are kept by God's grace. Isn't that awesome? Also, we find that God is a God that keeps covenant, gives us hope in prayer. You ever wonder, does God hear me in prayer? He says he does. How do I know he hears me? Look what Jesus says. He says, on that day, you will no longer ask me anything. And actually, we're in that day, by the way. And he says this, very truly, I tell you, my Father will give you anything, whatever you ask, in my name. Now, it's not asking for, like, unicorns and lollipops, right? God's not going to say, you know, ask for things that are selfish, that are self-serving. He's not going to enable sin, but what this does tell us is that when we pray in Christ's name, because of who God is, if it is necessary, if it's helpful, if it's good, if it's loving, he will give it to us every time. That's why we pray. That's why in this church we see answered prayers all the time. So we pray specific prayers and God gives specific answers because God is powerful and he hears us. And he doesn't hear us because you speak loud enough or you say the right things. He's here because he is God and he keeps his, his covenant of love with us. We know this too, forgiveness. Look at what he says here in 1 John. If we confess our sins... He, God, is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. I want you to think about this. How many Christians walk around every day with sins on their back that they have been paid for? They're not yours to carry. There are two words that are used with this, faithful and just, and are very important. And I'm going to give you an illustration. Last week on Thursday, Zach got hungry. And I was, I was going to run some errands downtown. He said, Aaron, if you're going to go into town, would you stop and get me a sandwich? I said, sure. So I went to Subway. And he gave me 10 bucks. So I go to Subway, and I order a foot-long Italian, right? And I get all the way to the end, and then I pay. And the cashier was faithful and just to give me that sandwich, wasn't he? In fact, I've been to Subway hundreds of times, right? And you can tell, right? And every single time, it's the same thing. I pay for my sandwich, I get my sandwich every time. It's like magic, right? I pay for the sandwich, it's mine, faithfully. Well, can you imagine if the clerk there stopped being faithful on that transaction? What if I go and I say, I would like my meatball sub, and I get to the end and I give him the money, and he's like, mm, I don't think you really meant it. You need a little bit more. Right? If he wasn't faithful to give me a sandwich, that would be unjust, wouldn't it? Right? That's why he can't do that. See, God is a just God. And if you are in Christ, your sins have been paid for, every one of them. They are not yours to carry. Let that sink in. You may feel guilty, but if you are in Christ, your sins have been paid for. Jesus paid the price. You don't even have the right to carry them anymore. He is faithful and just to forgive your sins. That's why you and me, brothers and sisters, we have confidence for the day of judgment. I don't have any sins that haven't been paid for. None. 
And that's why when I see my heavenly father on the, on the judgment seat, I am not going to be afraid about, was he going to uncover some little sin in my life? Or because I didn't do it perfectly, Jesus paid the price. He paid the price. He paid the price. You are set free. Set free. And we know we're set free because our God is a covenant-keeping God. So he's faithful and just. But you know, God doesn't just take care of us in the hereafter. He takes care of us now. Look at this passage from Hebrews. It's an amazing passage. And oftentimes when people memorize this, they memorize this the second part of it. He'll never leave you or forsake you. Get the first part. Get the context. Keep your lives free from the love of money. Be content with what you have because God has said, never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. Do you get what this is saying? This is freedom. If you are not in Christ, the promises of being God's child don't apply to you. Right? How many people live with this world on their own? Right? They, they don't have the promise of God, the God who says, I'm going to take care of your needs. I will, I will provide for you. They don't have that. Right? What, are they, what kind of security do you have in this world if you don't have God? Well, the only next best thing is money, isn't it? If I have enough money, then I'll be able to eat. I'll be able to, to have the kind of clothes that I want to have. I'll, I'll shield myself from some type of financial ruin or whatever and begin to love money right? because it becomes our savior, because it protects us from, the, from this awful, awful world. But money does not a perfect, it's, not a, it's not an Elohim. Money can't protect us from everything, which is why people with a lot of money still die. Uh, people with a lot of money live with a lot of anxiety if that's what their hope is in. But he says, you know what, the, the people who love money, they spend, and Jesus talked about this, he says, like, look at the world. And I want you to think about it. Think about people you know. Look at the, how most people who aren't in Christ, how they live their life. Terrified of what might happen next. Am I 401k going to have enough? Do I, if I'm making the, the right kind of thing, what if I lose my job? Because everything is on their shoulders. They have no security other than this. So their mind, their, their, their occupation, everything is, is towards this, just getting enough, and hopefully I can make it to retirement and, and die before my money runs out. You don't have to serve money. You get that? Money's not, there's nothing evil about money, but there's something evil that happens with us when it makes our God. That's why Jesus said you can't serve both masters. One's going to set you free, the other one's going to enslave you. And he says this, you don't have to. Here's why you don't have to love your money. Because God is with you. And he's not going to abandon you. He's a covenant-keeping God. And what are the promises of God? God said, hey, look at nature. Now, don't you look outside. I mean, when you walk, drive home, I mean, look at outside. Look at those trees, those mighty forests of God. You think those trees are worried about, you know, their next promotion? About, man, I better work the next couple hours or I'm going to get demoted or something. Those trees don't worry about that. Look at the birds. They're not pulling their feathers out going, ah, right? Am I going to have enough for my nest payment? Right? It's not how it works. And Jesus said, God can care for them. He says, every single one of those that he knows, he cares for. And if one falls, he knows about it. He cares. How much more are you who are his child? And if you are a child of God, he said, this is the secret for you. You don't have to, to be a slave to those things. He says this, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Then all those things will be given to you. You don't have to worry about those things. In fact, he says, don't even worry about it. Every day's got enough. Don't have to worry about tomorrow. God's got you now. And that's not just flowery language. That is a promise from a covenant-keeping God, and it's one that I've seen in my own life. I'll tell you, there were seasons in my life that I went through that I had no idea. Right? And I was at a precipice. I could either stop 
pursuing God. And I'll, I'll tell you this very practically. It was tempting to, to stop tithing. It was tempting to pull back and, and being generous the way that God had called me to be, not just in tithe, but also in some of the missionaries that we had supported, we had, we had covenanted with, prayed for about, and all this kinds of stuff. And there was a time when that amount of money would have seemed to be my savior. It would have been enough to do what we needed. And we, are at a, we were at a crossroads. And we chose faith. And we said we will choose God. We're going to seek his kingdom as righteous. I will tell you it's the most amazing thing. I can't figure out. I never went to bed hungry. My boy never went to bed hungry. We never lost our house. Right? We never lost a payment. We, we were, God took care of us. That's testimony because it's firsthand. And this is not just magic. This is a promise from an Elohim, the covenant-keeping God. He doesn't just care for us in hereafter. He cares for us in here and now. He is powerful and he is good. We talked about a lot of things today. We're getting to know God as Elohim. Some things that we talked about. We know that God is Elohim. And Elohim is God. He is the strong one. He is the one who keeps his covenant. Now I want you to think back to your memory verse. We had our memory verse today. You can even look at your card if you want to, but it says this. This Elohim, this strong, powerful God, this mighty one, this, this terrifying, wonderful, awesome El who keeps his covenant says this, and I will walk among you, and I will be your God, and you shall be my people. And I want you to think about how this covenant-keeping God kept that covenant with us. First was in Christ, right, in the past? That Elohim took on flesh and walked amongst us, <laughs> and it's God who came and did that. If it wasn't God, he couldn't have saved us from our sins. But he did. And he's our God, and we are his people because of it. Do you know that this was written 1,500 years before Jesus even showed up on the scene? This was the plan all along. But he's not done fulfilling it. God continues to fulfill this covenant with us now. When Jesus ascended to heaven, you know that God did not abandon us? He's given us Holy Spirit, hasn't he? That is Elohim. That is God Almighty in you. And I shall walk among them, and he does every single day, wherever you go as his church. He is in you and with you, and he will never leave you nor forsake you. God in you, with you. He walks among you. He is your God, and you are his people presently now. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that give you peace? God, the covenant keeper, the mighty God with me. But he's not done. It gets better. Jesus said, I'm giving you my Holy Spirit for a reason. He's sealing you, he's protecting you, he's providing for you, he's changing you from the inside out. But there is a promise still to come. That there is a day when God returns. Jesus is coming back. Not if, but when. And it is coming. He is on his way, right? Elohim, God will walk among us. Like physically, we will see him with our eyes. We will touch him with our hands. Can you even imagine? We're going to be there. You and me, let's press on through this crazy, chaotic world. Elohim is coming. And he'll walk among us, and he's not going to come as a horrible conqueror to destroy us. But he'll be our God, and we're going to be his people. In this chaotic world, the people have hijacked and caused all this pain, all of this chaos that we have caused. He's going to bring order. That is our hope. That is our hope. That's why we need to know God. So how do you apply this? How do you take this truth and put it into our lives? Following Jesus' discipleship. Discipleship is taking next steps. 
you take out your connection card, I've got some next steps. Ways that we follow God to bring glory to him and to enjoy him for who he is. On the back this week, do something. Take a step and here are some suggestions. First thing that you might want to do is memorize Leviticus 26. Right? Isn't that a powerful passage? Doesn't that passage give you the power to overcome the enemy when he tells you, oh, you're still guilty of these sins? You're like, "Uh -uh uh-uh-uh. My God is faithful and true. He's faithful and just. He forgave me my sins. Thank you very much. When you feel alone, when you feel that God may have abandoned you, know that your God is a covenant-keeping God, and he has not abandoned you, and he has not forsaken you, because he has spoken it, and he can't go back on it. That's who he is. When you feel that maybe your troubles are too big for you, your world has too much chaos, it's not too big for the great L. God is with you. He's in you. Memorize this passage. Let it be a guard of your heart. Maybe that's what you do this week. And don't just memorize it. Think about it. Pray to God. How is this true in my life? Or how about this? Maybe you want to read Genesis chapters 1 through 3. It's not just that God created the heavens and the earth. It's Elohim created the heavens and the earth. Think about that. Who did, how did God reveal himself? What does it mean? Who is this great God? And get to know him. Or maybe this. Maybe you need to ask God for help. Maybe your world is chaotic. Maybe your world's chaotic because you keep creating chaos. God's bigger than you. Maybe you go to the very God at the very beginning when the earth was chaotic and he created order. And you invite that God into your life. And you invite God into your situation. You say, God, your way, not mine. And you start asking God for help. Maybe that's what you start with this week. Or maybe what you need to do, and I would say this is for all of us, just be with us this summer. Get to know God. He covenanted with you. He wants you to know him. This is how he provided. It's church family. This is one of the places that we draw together, not just on Sundays. We have life groups. We've, we continue to grow together, don't we? Way that we serve together. Get to know God. And if we are his family, this is a great place to meet him, isn't it? So be here this summer. Get to know him by name. Get to glorify God. Maybe that's what your commandment is. If you've got a prayer request, write it down because our great God listens to him. Here in a minute, we're going to take our offerings and our tithes, but we're also going to take these connection cards. I'd like you to put those in the offering baskets as they're passed. Another way to bring God glory. Let's pray for these, and then we'll have the worship band come and close us with prayer. Father God, thank you. You're mighty, you're awesome, you're powerful, but you're also creative and good. You create order out of our chaos, Lord. We invite you to do that. We thank you for the power to do that. We thank you that you keep your covenant and the covenant with us to be saved by your grace through our faith in Jesus as our Lord and Savior. You draw us in, Father. You, you tell us to, to, to express our faith and belief and confession, repentance and baptism and to continue that with our, with our discipleship as we grow to know who you are. Father, I pray that you would make this church a faithful church that follows you whole. May you be our Elohim, our great God, the mighty one, Thank you for keeping covenant. We pray for the commitments we've made that we would keep them with you. May we bring you glory through them. We pray, for our, we pray Father, for our, our offerings and our tithes as well. Would you build your kingdom for your glory through them? We would ask all of that in the wonderful name of our Savior, our Elohim Jesus. Amen.